0: And today, folks, we are rewinding back to December the 17th, 2014, originally episode 1486. And this is an interesting episode. It's called 20 Simple Prepper Steps Every American Should Take. By 2014, this show was well established. Uh, We were up somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100,000 downloads per episode, so we had definitely kind of matured uh, a great deal. And this was one of those shows that was kind of like a rewind before there were rewinds in that we took a lot of the fundamental things that we had taught from the very beginning back in 08, and I made a list of 20 things that people should do, like, you know, just a couple of them. Keeping a food log, keeping a spending log, building a basic blackout kit, and, and a bunch more. And these are basic things. These are things that, again, every American should do. A person that doesn't want to be known as a prepper or survive, like. These are basic common sense things because if you hadn't paid attention during the almost 15 years that Survival Podcast is running, occasionally things go wrong for people, either a few people or a lot of people. We even have a method by which we, we kind of work that out and probability and what have you. And so every once in a while, and I've continued to do this all the way up to today, we'll go and we'll just go through very basic fundamentals. And as I was putting together this, this, this group of rewinds for this period, it occurred to me that I, I didn't really have one of these set up, and so when I got to 2014 and I saw this episode, I'm like, that's perfect. And then something else occurred to me. This show grew and became the success that it is because people like you listening to this right now, unless somebody did share it with you and you're listening to your first one, people like you went out and shared the show when I was nobody. In the very beginning, back in 2008, when I got in my car and started doing this from scratch with a little cheaper quarter and a headset, you guys shared the show. And we went from like five listeners in the first month to like 50 in the second month to a couple thousand six months in, and then we continued to grow. And one of the things that really helped that was in the beginning the shows were a little shorter and they were more specific, instead of going more deeper and philosophical... And it probably made it easier to share. So what I'm going to do, despite the fact that I've been doing longer, new material intros, is I'm going to cut this one short. We're just going to go dive right into the, 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 the stuff that's going on in this episode. So this may be a good episode for you to share with folks. And I'll tell you another thing about it, too. This is another one of those episodes where I start out by telling a lot of stories about my childhood and where I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. And... I don't. I, when I first started doing the show, and I would get into that mode and get into like old man storytelling, Jack, I'd always think like Jack, should you really be doing this? Does anybody really care? It turns out you guys really like that, and I think it sets a perspective, especially in this episode, because we did grow up with this mindset, but it wasn't something that like you saw sensationalized on television. It wasn't, oh, the, 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 the bad guys are going to come get us right It was simply, it's cold here in the winter, and if you're not prepared, you'll freeze. And all your pipes will freeze, and then they'll break, and then that'll suck. Or You might not be able to go anywhere for a while, so you might want to have some food and water because you could be snowed in, and it could take a while before anybody comes and gets you out. And, of course, those were region-specific, people in the Northeast right now are experiencing these very things. And they always will. So I think this is a great episode to share. We'll call it short on the new intro. Drop back in again. We are going back to episode 1486, 20 Simple Prepper Steps Every American Should Take. First published December seventeenth, 2014. I'll be back tomorrow with one more episode for you. It'll be, of course, from 2015, as we've walked episode by episode through the years, one year new each of this series, and uh, then the weekend, and then the new year, and then I'll be back with regularly scheduled programming. Remember, during these episodes of Rewind, I don't have any commercial content, but if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, it helps me out no matter what you buy. Take care, and I'll catch you tomorrow with one more in this series. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, 20 steps you can take as a new prepper or as an existing prepper that you can you know, kind of back up the truck and, and make sure you're doing these basic things. Uh, This is going to be a good show to share with new listeners, so if you want to send it to them and have them skip all the housekeeping, tell them to just jump to about the 10-minute mark. uh, They'll they'll end up about right where you're at right now. So prepping, to me, is something that is self-evident. It's something I grew up with, and I didn't grow up with it the way that many of you guys did. There's a lot of you in my audience that I've come to know over the years that have cultural and religious reasons that you prepare, and I'll leave it at that. And that's great, that's fine, but that's not why I grew up as a prepper. I grew up as a prepper because no one called it that, it's what it was, and we lived in a place where it got cold, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't always have the ability to just go buy more stuff whenever we needed it. And sometimes the power would go out and then it would be cold in, in the house and you'd have to figure out how to make the, the, the oil furnace work when the, the power was off so that you could stay warm. And we had a coal stove in the, in the kitchen just because, well, even if you couldn't get that to go on, at least you had some source of warmth in the home. And we just lived a very rural lifestyle uh, because that's where we lived. We, we hunted and fished to help put food on the table because that's what men and boys did as their primary recreational activity. They hunted and fished. So you had to make it have some sort of value if you were going to do it. We grew a garden because my grandfather grew a garden and his father taught him. And back in the old country, my great, uh, my, you know, my great great grandfather taught my great grandfather how to grow their own food because it was just, being connected to the land, and it was part of basically being a Ukrainian peasant farmer. That, that's the, the roots of my family. We are uh, predominantly from the Ukraine. A little bit of the family is from Austria and Italy. And all of those roots go back to people that just three or four generations ago lived from the land because they lived where everybody did that. And when we moved to Pennsylvania... Uh, as a family, and the different groups coalesce together in this little town called Jonestown. Not the, you know, the crazy Jonestown down in, in, in South America, but it's a little hamlet called Jonestown north of a place called Minersville. And there's more than one Jonestown in Pennsylvania. So if you wanted to see where I'm from, look at Minersville and look north of there. Find the Minersville Area High School, and, and just in that area is where my whole family is from in Pennsylvania. And, and this is down the way a little bit from a place called Pottsville. Now, um, Pottsville today is a rundown old coal town, uh, that doesn't have a lot going for it. Good people, but it doesn't have, like, no one moves to Pottsville for an opportunity. And when I was a kid, nobody was moving to Pottsville for an opportunity. And, and, you know, when, but long before I was born, when my, my, my father was born and his brothers were being born, no one moved to Pottsville for an opportunity. But before the Great Depression, Uh, When transportation wasn't what it is, you know, it was by even the fifties. Pottsville was a little metropolis unto itself. It was a place that people traveled from quite far away to go to. You, you at the time, if you couldn't get to Reading, or Allentown, or Philadelphia, you you went to Pottsville, and and that was a lot of people. And it was a place that, you know, when people went to get supplies or buy nice things or luxuries and they could go, you know, maybe once a month to do that, they went to Pottsville. They took the train or one of the early cars or even horse and buggy and they went to Pottsville. It was a big town. And by the time the Depression came along, it had already fallen apart. My grandfather told me they told, that we were told when the Great Depression started and we didn't see anything happen any different. And we were told when it was over, and we didn't see anything different. It had its fall uh, right about the time of World War one as as transportation opened and other things began to develop, and people became more free uh in their ability to get things and 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 then the the a lot of the easy coal had already been mined from the area on top of that, and other types of mining was going on and the dawning of things like the earliest forms of strip mining started to come along and jobs. You know, decreased in number. There were still good jobs, but the number of people needed to run them were lower, and this whole area became a very depressed area. So the people that settled there were largely Slovakian and Irish. They were mostly out of the Ukraine area, Ukraine, Lithuania, Georgia, not the state, the 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 nation that was part of the Soviet Union, uh, Hungary, uh, a little bit of like I said, Austria. Um, and and somehow into all of this, Irish. And all of these families were only one or two generations. uh, In fact, at the time that the whole thing fell apart, all of our families from this area were still, you know, had a patriarch or a matriarch that had lived as a peasant over in the old country. So people just went back to doing what always worked. You have a little plot of land, you grow your own food. You hunt, you gather, and you, you build a strong community. And, and that was my foundation as a prepper, and I walked through most of my life not knowing that that made me a prepper. Because it didn't. It just made me somebody from that small community. But like many people growing up in small communities like that, especially as a teenager, you don't really understand how special they are. And then the flat reality is you don't have a lot of opportunity to really become a success there. You have to go somewhere else to become a success when you when you measure that success in finance. And in you know our modern age, that's how success is measured, whether it's valid or not. That's how it's measured. And that's what you're taught. Go to school, get good grades, get a good job, get benefits, et cetera. And you look around, and you see places where there is a good job, and you see that's a place like Cresona Aluminum, where you work Swing Shift, and you make a little bit better money than, than everybody around you, and, and you can stay there long enough and maybe retire if things don't change. And you look at somebody like my great-uncle Pete, who retired from Cresona Aluminum, and I don't even know if they call it that anymore. That's what it was called back in the day. And he retired in the 70s, and he had this really great retirement. And you realize that the guys that were retiring in the 80s uh, into the early 90s, they, they weren't getting the retirement that great-uncle Pete had. Like, that was a mythology that was left behind. And there were layoffs all the time. And and every time there was a layoff, and it ended and people got called back, less of the people laid off got called back. And the number of places like a Crestone Aluminum where it was considered a good job were going down. And guidance counselors and and career people that came in for career day in school were telling you, you got to go somewhere else. So you did. And then you get out and you leave that community and you become a success, And you start to realize, hey, I can buy the stuff that we used to fix a hundred times. And if I need something done, I can just pay somebody to do that. And and this is much better. And, God, I like this life. And you lose connection with it. That's, That's how things were for me. And once I had completely divorced myself and lost connection to that, I began to actually learn more about politics and economics and understand the threats to this country. And like many... I had somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction in running to prepping as a way to make myself feel comfortable once again. But I never went nuts with it. I just simply realized, hey, we've got to take control of our debt. We've got to take control of our money. We've got to start producing some of our own food. We've got to start living the way I grew up. And that's how I came to prepping. And very soon after I started prepping in, in our lives, and this would have been about the Y2K period, and Y2K never scared me, but it did wake me up. It made me go, this is this is nothing. This might cause a few hiccups and, and, and stuff, but this isn't really a big deal. But what if something did happen? Well, what? I, I don't know. I mean, the government owes so much money, and there's all of these problems, and we just had a stock market crash, and you know, it could have been a lot worse, and there'll probably be more of them, and there were, and you know, we should at least put in a garden, we should get rid of our debt. So we started to do these basic things. And along the way, it became more and more empowering. And it became more and more logical and methodical. And it became more and more just part of our lives. And all of a sudden, we had a modern lifestyle, but we, uh, we were reconnected to my family's roots. And I was able to share that with my wife and my, and my son. And, and then eventually, many people through the podcast. And that's where you should be coming from as a prepper. And that's where these 20 steps take you as a prepper. And where you don't want to come from as a prepper is the world of hype that that exists now. We today have what I call a preparedness industry. It's not just a niche. It's an entire industry. There's entire companies built on preparedness. And some of them aren't doing very well right now, by the way. I'm seeing the same cycle occur now that I did around Y2K. It wasn't as abrupt with 2012 because not everybody took that completely seriously, but there was a recession, there was a Barack Obama presidency, there was a, a big fear hype around. You know, I'm not a fan of just about anything the guy's done, but that that the the, the, the health care law was actually so they could lock us up in FEMA camps, and there was all this hype and hysteria, and all coalesced around the 2012 phenomenon and and and, and media hyping it up. And it's all built in industry that, I said this in past shows, looked an awful lot like the industry built around the Y2K hype. And that one of the very interesting telling points about the Y2K hype was that I met along the way uh, through this journey a, a gentleman named James Talmadge Stevens who wrote a book on preparedness, one of the best-selling books on preparedness of all time, and a damn good one. That book was making the best of basics, and James came from all the way back in the infomarketer days of the 70s, and he's a savvy marketer, and he learned about the Internet in the mid-2010 period, right, and that, like 2004, 2005, and got very good at using that, and we became friends. And he sent me one of the older copies of his books, and this was a copy that was printed around 1998 because it's been through seven, several editions, uh, sold over a million copies at this point. And he's a smart guy. And one of the things he realized is one way to self-publish your book would be, instead of just self-publishing your book and selling it, sell ad space in your book. So the the back-of-the-book stuff from the 70s taken to a new level. Instead of just having the the back-of-the-book sell more of your products, approach all the people in the industry that you're writing for. Say, I'm not going to compete with you. I only do information. And sell them. Hey, I'm going to be printing this book. It's going to be going out. People that read it are going to be people that bought the book that want to know more. You can put one page in the book selling what you do and that'll be a thousand dollars and you know you get twenty or thirty people to do that or more uh, and and all of a sudden you've made thirty forty thousand dollars before that book went to press now you can not only afford to print it but you can have a hell of a marketing push behind it to sell it so it, it's a very smart formula but it it opened a window into a reality I started looking and there were He was good at what he did, James. And he had way more than 40 companies that he was able to sell on this concept. And I don't know how much they all paid. Um, Some might have paid a few hundred. Some might have paid a thousand or two. But you could tell that he made a good income off of selling space in these books. And I started looking up the companies that were big enough in 1998 to want to advertise that way. And over 80% of them were no longer in business. And you could tell by their advertisements, they had major presences, that they were probably highly successful. But when Y2K came and went and nothing happened, they dried up and they blew away. And I see a lot of the companies that have become parasites on this industry in very near danger of doing that right now. Because instead of helping people adapt to a better quality of life and a lifestyle, they've sold on hype and panic. And they're, they're, they're cleaning themselves out right now and in many ways good riddance. And it's because they don't start with fundamentals and enable the fundamentals. Now, on the other hand, it's great that there's an industry because it allows good companies to serve us as a market And you want to buy from people that understand you and are addressing your concerns and are the same type of people that you are. And when I say that, I don't mean race, religion, creed. I mean that they are aware. Like So doing business within a community and doing business with people is is the way that we all prefer to do our business, if we can. We don't really want to buy from Walmart. It's just convenient and the price is good. If you give us an alternative, we'll likely take it. But in the end... You could be a Walmart prepper, and, and I don't mean the stupid way, which is if everything goes wrong, I'll just go to Walmart and loot it. No, I mean you can get most of what you need to prep at Walmart if you really want to, or Costco, or you know wherever. You don't need specialty stores. You just might do better dealing within your own community and and finding things that really are tailored to you. And there is that, but it's covered with all this hype, and this doomsday prepper nonsense, and, and this, all this BS. Uh, The truth is prepping doesn't require a mountain retreat. It doesn't require a bunker. And it certainly doesn't require 20 pallets of MREs in your basement. What it actually requires us to do is simply think more like our grandparents and great-grandparents and less like modern slaves who worship authority, conformity, and debt. So that's where I'm coming from with these, these 20 steps today. So after all that, yes, we'll get to the 20 steps. But I think it's important that we understand the foundation that we're building on. And fundamentals without a foundation to attach them to are weak. It's like the pillars I talked about yesterday. So think of these as 20 pillars that build a a, a highly prepared lifestyle. And unlike just four pillars, if if you fall short on one, there's 19 others holding up the building. It takes a lot to bring a building down when there's 19, 20 pillars holding it up. And I'm even going to give you a bonus today. And make it an even blackjack for you with 21. Step one, keep a food log. Well, this is something I've said in countless shows, and it, it has so many benefits to you. It, it really does. It, you will end up, I, I don't have to tell you to exercise. I don't have to tell you that you're eating things you shouldn't eat. I don't have to tell you what to eat, what not to eat. I don't have to do any of that. Your human intuition knows when you're eating things you shouldn't eat. And your human intuition knows when you've gone from indulgence. To excessiveness, if you are made aware of it, and the problem is that most people are no longer aware of anything in their life. They don't. They won't sit down for a few minutes of private comp, uh, private contemplation, and even think about their breathing for thirty seconds a day, and just count your breaths for thirty seconds to take control of something that you take for granted. Well, that's how eating has become. We eat in our cars. We eat at our desks. We just we, get, we need a snack, we go and we grab something, we shove it in our face. So there's a health component here. But there's also a practical component here. The practical component is, if I keep a food log, and then I say, what do I store? All I have to do is look at that log, look at the food that I and my family eat, pick the stuff out that stores well, and focus on that first. I don't have to research protein powders, rice and beans, mylar bags, Mountain house, long-term food storage, MREs. Not that any of that's not valuable, but I don't have to start there. I just have to start with, you know what? My kids eat this. This store's in a shelf. I will buy more of this. How simple is that? And then when you need food because you can't go somewhere for whatever reason, it's there and it's the food they're used to eating. And it will have a dramatic improvement on your overall health you will start to think more about what you eat. And again, I don't have to judge you. I don't have to tell you to eat like me. I don't have to tell you what diet to follow. I'm a paleo guy. I don't care if you're paleo. I know that the majority of Americans are eating a shitty diet and that the majority of Americans could be eating a high-quality diet, even if it's not what I would choose for myself, just if they were paying attention to what they were doing. It will make you spend less money, and it will make you eat better food. And all you need is a $0.78 notebook, that you put on your countertop. And all you do, with no judgment, and you don't have to track who ate what, just every time anybody in the family eats something, write it down. When you make dinner, two pounds ground beef, 80%. You know, If you made Hamburger Helper one package, Hamburger Helper, and you might start thinking about well, what's really in there and read the box and go, maybe we can find something else. But if you want to eat it, eat it. Hey, you know what? It stores on the shelf. You don't have to meet stores in a freezer. The meat can be stored through canning. We'll get to stuff on things like that later. So you start figuring out all the things you use and what stores easy on its own and start thinking about how can I store more of the things that I can't just put on a shelf. That's just a thought experiment. That's it. The next one, keep a spending log. Write down every dollar you spend for the next 60 days. Don't judge it. I'm not asking you to cut anything. I'm not asking you to do anything different. I'm not asking you to ask permission for me to spend your money. I'm not telling you not to use a credit card, even though I don't think you should. I'm just saying to write down what you spend. And I know that a lot of you will. I have a credit card statement that keeps track of things for my business. and uh, I'm not talking about that. Just right next to your food journal, put a spending journal. And the nice thing is, whenever you go grocery shopping, you just come home and write down groceries for this week, $329.72, right off the receipt. Done. But if you buy lunch, keep the receipt when you come home, write it down. If you buy a new couch, bought couch, one thousand one hundred and twenty one dollars, whatever, right? Made car payment, three hundred and twenty eight dollars and seventy two cents. You know, every every penny you spend of significance. If you go to the store and buy a package, of juicy fruit gum for fifty cents and you forget to do it, it's okay. But technically you should write it down. Paid cable bill, paid internet bill, just write it down. No judgment, just write it down. That's it. I didn't say make a budget. I didn't say constrain yourself. I want you to understand how soft and easy this is. You will spend less money. In 60 days, you will start figuring out ways to spend less money. I won't have to tell you what to cut. You'll do it yourself. You don't have to to sacrifice a lot. You'll just start to see things that you never saw before. And you'll become more financially responsible. Period. You can't do these two things and not become more nutritionally responsible and more financially responsible. That's why I've given them to you as your first two steps. The rest of these steps are not even in any order. You can do them in any order that you want. These two steps I consider mandatory because they are so simple you have no excuse. And I'll tell you what. It's December 17th. You can go buy your two notebooks and write spending journal, food journal, and set them somewhere on the shelf today that's what I'd like you to do do this today you'll be at a buck 50 if anybody really can't afford a buck 50 email me your paypal address and say I need two notebooks for a buck 50 and I can't afford it I'll send you $2 to cover the fees so that you can go buy two notebooks and then write that down put it on your shelf you can wait till january 2nd to make your first entry Because you're going to eat all kinds of garbage, and it's Christmas, and I don't want you not to eat garbage. And you're going to spend money you normally don't spend, and I want you to spend it. I want you to enjoy the holiday. I don't care if it's Hanukkah for you, or Kwanzaa, or Christmas. I don't care. Happy holidays. And if that offends you, you have a problem. Okay? But I want you to just enjoy this time. It's part of being with your family. Yes, it's where we spend more money. It's why the economic bubble gets bigger in December. Let it be. But start doing this on January 2nd for me. It will change your life. You will look back on March 2nd, and you will think, "I have this will do more than any New Year's resolution ever will. You don't have to make any choices. You just have to record it, and it will lead you to choices. Trust me on this. The next thing, perform a risk assessment on your life and your geography. It's very important that you don't miss the first part, your life and your geography. So your geography, I'm in Texas. Hurricanes are a little bit of a threat from the residual storms they can cause But I'm far enough from the coast that I don't really get affected by hurricanes. And the reality is, almost every hurricane that hits Texas, even the aftermath, misses Dallas. It's just the way they come in, they kind of drift east almost immediately. But I do get thunderstorms and tornadoes and hail. And in this time of year, I get ice storms. So that's a geographic threat. I get very dry, windy weather in the summer. And grass fires and forest fires are a huge threat. So those are some geographic threats. I won't keep going, but just to give you an idea. But then there's life threats. So how many people are employed in your family? Do you have a one or two income family? Could you survive on the income of one if you have two? How long will your unemployment last and how much would it be if you qualify for it? There's no guarantee that when you lose your job, you'll qualify for unemployment. You would think there is, but there isn't. Your employer could let you go in a way where you don't. So you have to identify the threats to you in their impact and their probability. And just get yourself a third journal, right, and write that down. Write down, just, this is your life journal. You can do this all online if you want to. But for the spending and the food, get the notebooks and put them on your counter. This you can do on a Word document. Just start to analyze all the things in your life that could go wrong. Not from a standpoint of fear, but from a standpoint of being your own consultant, If I came into your business and you said, I want my business to be more profitable and more resilient, I would examine both your opportunities and your risks. And yet, we don't do this in our own lives. And this is how people come to prepping. Imagine there's three threats to you right now, three physical threats to your personal safety. One is a big goon with a giant baseball bat with, like, a giant spike driven through it. It's like five of them, like an old mace, right? Driven through it like 20 of these big giant spikes. And he's pacing back and forth, and he's 20 feet away from you. Okay, Now, you don't even know if he's mad at you. You don't know if he's mad at his family. You don't know if he's just some guy that's there for theatrics. You really don't know, but he could turn on you at any minute. 20 feet past him is a toddler with about five teeth, crawling towards you and drooling that wants to bite you in the shit. Okay? And then right next to the big goon with the the baseball bat is a picture of a guy on TV. He's in a desert, 5,000 miles away, and he says he wants you dead. But he has no visible means to get to you, but it could happen, right? Now, (laughs) which threat do most people pay attention to metaphorically in their lives? The guy on the TV 5,000 miles away in the middle of a desert that wants you dead that has no visible means with which to find you or even know who you are. Right? And then the next threat is the crawling, drooling toddler because you know he wants to bite you even though it wouldn't hurt that bad and it's not that big a deal and you can just spin him around and send him on his way. And they ignore the pacing giant goon with the baseball bat full of nails because they're not sure that he even cares about you. That guy is a job loss, it's illness for your family, it's a localized storm, it's a localized riot. It may never impact you, but if it does, it's right there. And it's more likely to cause you harm and to happen than the toddler or the terrorist in the TV. And when you do your life assessment, you have to think about, how long would we survive with no income? You might realize there's a gaping hole in your preparedness there. That's more important than a lot of the other things I'm going to talk about. So we need to shore that up first. So you might also identify that, hey, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I'm in danger of dying from cancer. Pretty, pretty likely. Right? And, well, my grandfather smoked, and yeah, so did mine. My grandfather smoked Camel no filters, about two packs a day. And he drank every day of his life including, like, draining whiskey bottles per day. And he lived into his 90s. And I remember him sitting there drinking a a drink and smoking a cigarette when he was in his 80s, saying, when a doctor told me I was going to die 10 years ago, he's dead, he's in the ground, and I'm still here. But I still know that living that way is probably not a good idea. So assess the risks to your life and address them, however you choose to. But at least assess them. And assess your geographic risks. Because this is going to make your preparedness plan based on your life, not mine. You know, if you feel like, Jack, what's your plan for a blizzard with 18 feet of snow? I don't have one. Because it ain't happening here. I get ice, and I could get 12 inches maximum-ish of snow. I could be snowed in for a week, but I'm not getting a blizzard. I'm not getting a blizzard, you guys mean, in in Buffalo. They're not going to be bringing in, you know, bulldozers to open the place up. It's just, it doesn't happen here. So I'm not worried about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, what's your plan to deal with an earthquake? Uh, my basic preparedness would cover if it had happened, but our earthquakes here are not, you know, San Francisco earthquakes. They're just not, that's not what happens here. What's your plan to deal with a tornado? Oh, well, we have a plan for that because that happens every year. not necessarily happen to us, but it happens around us every year. This is a high priority. From our risk assessment. And this leads us to our other decisions. right? What's your plan for getting fired from a job? I don't have one. I don't have a job. I have a business. What's your plan for a downturn in your business? Oh, I have that. Because that's possible for me. right? And it's probable for me. It's not highly probable, I hope. But it's probable. It's something that could occur. So we do our risk assessment based on probability and impact. The next thing we want to do... And again, this isn't in order. These are just 20 things. If you do these, your life will be far more stable in the long term than most people will ever have their life be. Build a basic blackout kit. A blackout kit, not a bugout kit. Blackout kit is flashlights, batteries. If you have an inverter for your car, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Inverters, um, candles, lanterns, everything that you would need if the power goes out. Uh, To at least get to all the other things you have prepared if the power goes out. This is is your basic starting point. So you're in the house. Everybody's kind of chilling out. You're watching TV. Kids are in their pajamas. You know, it's almost time for bed. And all of a sudden, everything goes out. It's now pitch black. The lights went out outside. There's no moon. There's a storm, whatever. You can't see anything. You should have a plan to get to your blackout kit. So you should have emergency lighting, simple little plug-in emergency lights or something like that, flashlights on every door handle, in every drawer, Except cetera. Some of them should be extra light somewhere. And then you get that initial ability to see where you're going, and you know you're going straight to your blackout kit. You pull out that blackout kit, maybe you have an emergency weather radio in there. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But all your stuff for the blackout, it's just the first stuff. You can start pulling it out, handing out flashlights, glow sticks, whatever it is for you. And then that way you can get all your other stuff in place to deal with your blackout. Whether you know it's only going to be a couple hours and you're not that worried and all you need is right there, or this looks like a pretty bad event because of an ice storm and you might be without power for a week or two and you're going to need to get out your generator or your alternative heat, whatever it is. At that point, you have this starting point. And I really like the idea of having an emergency power light or if you have a battery backup system, keeping that stuff where the battery backup system is and having a light there so you're moving to the light. That is, that's a, that's a, a very simple way to make sure that you can find what you need. The next thing is you need a basic first aid kit to be able to handle sicknesses and illnesses when going to the doctor is either impossible or inconvenient and basic first aid. This is not an ER trauma kit. Right, This is not a stomp surgical uh, field kit. This is bandages, splints, uh, band-aids, antiseptic, and basic over-the-counter medications and things like that. Things to wash stuff out of eyes if eyes are burned, to deal with chemical burns, to deal with things like poison ivy, poison oak, uh, cuts, lacerations, etc. So a basic first aid kit. That needs to be put together. And if you go to Walmart and buy the 115 piece Basic first aid kit, and a plastic thing, you're probably not prepared for Jack crap. Because of the 119 pieces, like 92 are probably Band-Aids. Band-Aids aren't bad, Band-Aids are great, but that's not really going to make a first aid kit for me. So build a good first aid kit. Step six, begin the process of copy canning. Now, like I said, this is not in order, but notice I said keep your food lock. Right, And I said, that's mandatory. That's right away. Keep your spending log. and That's mandatory. That's right away. That's going to help with the copy canning. Copy canning is the very simple first step in making your pantry, what we call in the prepper world, deep. Make a deep pantry. That means that when I use something, I still have more. Because two is one. One is none. Three is for me. Four is even more. Five keeps you alive. Okay? You can keep going. I think we came all the way to nine one time. But That mentality, we need to start developing into our lifestyle. So if you use a can of something, like something that gets used in a lot of redneck cooking here in Texas, Wolf Brand Chili. And you use Wolf Brand Chili, and you go to the store, and you look at your food log over 60 days, and it's in there like four times. This is what you call a repeat-use product. I don't know what you're doing with it, but you're using it. So it makes sense the next time you go to the store and you have on your list two cans by three one can by two, three cans by four. You're replacing what you used plus one. That's all you're doing. And you just keep doing that until you have a nice, long, deep row of cans that go all the way to the back of the pantry, maybe two rows of something you use a lot. And that way, when you use it, you're not out of it. There's still more, and when you replace and once you get kind of the inventory you want to run you just buy what you use to replace it. You go back to normal, and you do it with something else, and you do it with something else. And you do it with all the things in that food log that store well. Can doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a can. It could be a box good. It could be a package good. Of anything that stores on the shelf that you use regularly or even semi-regularly you should build an inventory of. Why? doesn't really cost you anything. You're going to use it anyway. Keep an eye out for sales, and buy one, get one free, and coupons, and stock up on those items when they occur. Let your own journal be your guide. That is all. That's the whole step. And you will start to realize really quick that getting a couple weeks of stored food in your home requires no specialty shops, no specialty products. You might get a little bit bored, but all the stuff that you eat and use anyway that's storable will be there in abundance, and getting the two weeks is almost nothing. And that will get you through 90% of the disasters that you might expect to, uh, to, to incur. Next one's going to make some of you cringe, but it shouldn't. You have to listen to me in, in from full on this. Cut two expenses, two of your choosing. Notice I didn't say eliminate. I said cut. Go to your spending journal after 60 days. Look at all the places you're spending money and find two places you can spend less. How much is up to you? I trust that you will do something meaningful with this request that you do too. And it could be simple. Like, if you find, well, you know what? I spend X amount of dollars a month on buying lunch at work because I always buy lunch at work every day. I'm not saying take lunch to work every day. Take lunch to work two days a week. Cut that piece. Use left. You can probably find enough leftovers that are ended up being thrown away or given to the dog or what have you anyway, to do that. Some of you, this doesn't apply, because you already take your lunch, or you don't go to work, or whatever. Well, then you find something else. But I'll guarantee you, especially if you haven't done this exercise in a while, there are at least two places you can cut some spending. And it might not seem significant. It might be five bucks a week. Okay, five bucks a week... Times two, uh, two, uh, 2 adult household, yeah, because both of you have to cut something okay if there 's two of you, you each have to do this uh, that 's ten dollars a week that 's forty dollars a month that 's four hundred and eighty dollars a year that 's almost five hundred bucks it, it seems like nothing it 's five hundred dollars you didn 't have before. It will lead you to other things. it will lead you to balancing out your budget you did know, they make a budget' they have a big knockdown drag out fight about who cuts what. I said, you just pick two places to cut somebody because it'll probably be more than that. I've heard from people that have done this, that have said we cut, you know, in the end they ended up cutting four because there's two adults. So each adult cut two things. Not even out, just basically. And I've heard from people saying anywhere between two dollars to $5,000 back in their pocket over a year when they realized it. One of the people said that they started cutting the number of cigarettes, That they bought. Now, I'm not gonna get on a health kick on this. I try not to beat up on you smokers. I will tell you that you stink. That you stink, you stink, you stink, and we don't wanna smell you. That's how everybody else feels about you, and no one cares about you enough to tell you that you stink. You reek when you smoke. And no one wants to breathe your stink. So, if nothing else, get an electronic cigarette. You probably won't save any money. You'll probably break even, but at least you'll stop stinking. And people will wanna be around you again. Um, but aside from that, this guy said he was smoking like 10 packs a week and he decided I'll get by on five. And I think cigarettes were like five bucks a pack for this guy. So that ended up being $25 a week. That was a hundred dollars a month, $1,200 a year from that one choice. Well, I don't smoke, find something else. Right. But that was, you know, 1200 bucks on that one choice. And he ended up quitting smoking. Because he was like, well, that could be almost you know 2500 bucks." He started looking around what $2,500 would buy him every year. And he decided he wanted those things more. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying pick something. Because it's a start. It's a place in the right direction. And it'll begin to put your financial life in order. Um, and you'll start finding out you can do things like pay off your debt then. Uh, which is not even on this list today, by the way. It's not even on this list. I think, you'll lo- I think you'll lead yourself there if you follow the rest of it. I trust, again, I trust in you enough as a person to believe that if I put you on the right track, you'll keep walking. The next one is build a basic 72-hour kit, a bob, a bug-out bag. That's where everybody says, I want a bug-out bag, I'm going to live in the mountains, and ha! I will fight the Illuminati in my Red Dawn-style war. No, 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 you won't. I'm talking about clothes, food the ability to purify or carry water, and basically, if you had to go to a, a a stranger's home for three days and sleep on the floor of their basement, that's the kind of bug-out kit to build. Because you're not going to go live in the middle of the Rocky Mountains for three days because the apocalypse came. Okay, A bug-out bag is not a sustainability for the rest of your life run-away-from-John-Law bag. Okay, It is a three-day overnight bag. Okay? That's, that's really what it is. So the reason I say a stranger's family is assume they're not going to invite you to the dinner table. Assume that you're going to have to see to your own cleanliness and stuff. And you might go three days without a shower, by the way. So being able to wash your face and your hands and things like that, um, it, you might end up outside for part of the time, and there might be bugs, so things like bug repellent. You might have some basic first aid needs, so a smaller version of the first aid kit. All the, we can, You can go into all the shows I've done about bug out bags, but if you just think that way, and you need one for you, you need one for your spouse, and you need one for each of your kids. And your kids can only carry so much, but they don't need to carry that much. The stuff they need is far lighter than the stuff you need. They wear you know smaller clothes and stuff like that. And a lot of the stuff that you carry can be used for them, right? So the first aid kit thing, they don't need that. If you have a means of defense, they probably don't need that at a certain age, right? So they need going to grandma's for three days. If grandma lived in a dirt shack, she cares about them, she's going to take care of them, but she doesn't have very much. Right, They need to make sure they can feed themselves, have some candy and stuff, and be comfortable through this inconvenient time that they have to stay with dirt poor grandma. Because you're going to be dirt poor grandma during those three days. That's how you have to look at it. That's the simplest way I can tell you to build a bug out bag. You don't have to get all tactical. You don't have to be loading up ammunition and magazines and stuff like that. That's a different kind of bag. That's your active shooter bag. That's your go bag. Right? This, this is a 72-hour, I'm inconvenienced in my life bag. This is, you just found out that your kid has some terrible medical condition. And you have to immediately take them to a hospital, and we're going to start the treatment right away. I'm sorry to put it that real to you. That sucks. And you're going to be sleeping on the floor in your kid's hospital room for the next three days. This is that kind of bag. And their stuff's going to be with them, and, and they're going to be scared. And they're going to they're gonna want some way to take their mind off it. So there's some kind of mind-engaging activities in their little bag. And your wife's going to be there. She's going to be cold and dirty and tired and stressed and sad. And just the basics that you need until somebody else from your family can come tag-team you out for a little while when you're finally willing to admit there's only so much you can do there. This is that kind of bag. Build that bag. You might need it at some point in your life. And you can build 80% of it with stuff laying around the house clothes that you don't really wear anymore. Women, I know some of you, I know some of you have clothes in your closet with tags on them cuz my wife does. You ain't going to wear them, put them in your bug out bag or give them away. Okay? But an old pair of jeans, extra underclothes, some socks, toothpaste, a toothbrush, overnight bag, but for 3 days. Okay? Step 9. Buy some source of backup power, any source, I do not care. Build a Stephen Harris battery bank with four uh marine-grade batteries in your closet and a smart charger and an inverter like I have over here and, and, and build that, or... Build a, buy a small generator or go get a $50 800 watt inverter and some extension cords to hook up to the battery of your car and use the way that Stephen Harris has taught you how to do it. And if you don't know how to do that, I will put links to the Stephen Harris shows on batteries and running your house from your car and all that stuff today. I'll just put a link to Stephen Harris' site where all of his shows are listed on how to do that. But get some method of providing yourself power, okay, beyond the grid. Start with one. I don't care what one. My personal opinion is the most cost-effective is an inverter for your vehicle. You can run an 800-watt inverter off your vehicle. It'll do a lot for you. If you have two vehicles, $100, bucks, 2 800-watt inverters, and if you keep your tanks full on your car and you keep a couple extra gallon, a couple extra five-gallon cans of gas around, you can do a lot with a little bit of power. All right? And enough extension cords to back your car the hell out of the garage so you don't kill yourself with carbon monoxide. All right. But some source of backup power. Next, step 10, get some source of backup heating. Uh if it's a propane space heater, if it's a kerosene heater, I don't care what, make sure that if the power goes out when it's cold you can stay warm. It's actually more important than the ability to stay cool with unless you have certain situations. So, If you have a a generator, I'd recommend a little window air conditioner where you can have at least one comfortable room in your house. But that's not on my 20-step gotta-have list, but the backup heat is. If the power goes out and it's cold, it can go to a dangerous situation pretty quick. And being able to heat at least a room, or at least part of the home, and everybody's in sleeping bags and stuff on the floor together, huddled up, that's fine. But if you can stay warm, you can stay in your home. If you can't, you probably won't end up staying in your home. And then the sad part is you may not have a choice, and you might have to. So a backup source of heat of your choice. But be smart about it. Think about your spatial requirements, storing extra fuel for it. How much can you store? How long does it last? How safe is it? Go through the whole rigmarole. If you have natural gas to your home, get a plumber to come in and plumb a couple space heaters. You have endless heat. At that point. If you have a great big propane tank like I do, plumb in some space heaters off of that. You don't have endless heat, but you got a lot of it. More efficient to go straight from fuel to heat than from fuel to electricity to heat. That's a very inefficient way to do things. So some backup source of heating. Something that's bulletproof, it will work and will keep you warm for at least a week. At least a week during the night and the early morning. You can do that. You can probably get through most things that will go wrong. Two weeks is a better idea. I know a lot of people during one of the last big ice storms that ended up stranded for 14 to 20 days. And that seems to be about the the upper end limit of the majority of disasters. I'm not promising it will take care of everything. I'm telling you it will take care of most things if you have that kind of longevity with backup heating, backup power. Next, build just two additional uh, food storage containers in seven and a half gallon tubs, or you can do four or five, uh, four or five gallon buckets that hold about, about the same. So the seven and a half gallon Rubbermaid tubs. So all the stuff that you build your deep pantry with, once you've figured out what that is, make a mirror of it in either four buckets or two tubs and put it somewhere in your home. And once a year, as you clean out the pantry restock it from the tubs, and refill the tubs. That will extend your longevity for food. You still haven't bought any specialized products. You still haven't gone out and spent any money you weren't going to spend any money any, anyway. You're still buying the stuff that your family uses all the time. You can still take opportunity buys, buy one, get one free, sales and coupons, and make this happen. But most of you will find that a deep pantry is not enough to get to a full two weeks to one month of stored food. You just don't have the space. A couple Rubbermaid tubs can probably fit under your bed. You can slide them under there. Just create some sort of reminder in your Outlook calendar or your phone or something that reminds you a couple times a year to kind of do some rotation. And what you end up with is you end up with that food just being five, six years old and forgetting about it. If it happens, donate it to the hungry and replace it. I mean, it's not a a tremendous loss. It's not that big of an investment, but it's an additional insurance plan. And if you end up in a situation like, how could you end up having to feed more people than you plan? Jack, when the end of the world comes, if my stupid family shows up at my house, they want to come in, the zombies are eating them because I've told them and they don't listen. How about this? Your family, uh, extended family, comes to spend time with you like, a great movie to watch this time of year, Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase, right? You have a big to-do, the whole family's over, and everybody's going to leave. It's not like Chevy Chase were there for like a week, you know, and Cousin Eddie shows up with his wife Catherine and the RV and the kids and snots the dog. Everybody's there at your house, and you're singing Merry Christmas to all and Happy New Year and all that good stuff and eating and drinking and being merry, and a giant storm rolls in, and nobody can leave for three or four days. Now, well, once the leftovers are gone, you've got to feed everybody. You could just have a big group of people at your home when something goes wrong. You don't get to pick the time that your disaster occurs. Like, it would be very convenient for me if my disaster would occur the third week of next month, right after I get paid. No, it doesn't work that way. That's why they are disasters. So you could just have a bunch of people stuck at your house, and you know what? You're not going to turn, uh, turn away the old lady down the road who watches your kids during a disaster. You're going to want to help her. This additional stuff is so that you can not just get through a little bit longer-term disaster, but so when you know it's mid-term, short-term stuff, you can help others. Because that's going to spread preparedness. It's going to make your neighborhood more prepared. And if your neighborhood's more prepared, so are you. Very, very simple. Very, very cheap. Very, very easy. The next thing, step 12, store a minimum of 50 gallons of water and more if you can. And I've said this over and over The best storage containers I know for water are free. And they come either from you because you drink this crap you shouldn't drink or you know someone who does. We use one-gallon Arizona iced tea jugs. They are about 600 times stronger than a milk jug. Yes, I just made up that specification out of my head. I don't know how much stronger they are, but they are a lot. You can drop one, and it might knock the top off, but it won't burst. Drop a milk jug full of water and see what happens on a concrete floor. Make sure you do it in a place where you don't mind getting wet because it's going to explode. Drop an Arizona jug and it will maybe blow the lid off of it, and you can pick it up before it all leaks out and put it back on. But it was not from drop from you know chest height. It's not going to explode. And two liter soda bottles, either one of those or anything like them, heavy gauge food grade plastic that you're using or someone else is using and throwing away. Ask them to save them for you. Fill them up with water. If you have a extra space in your freezer or a deep freezer with extra space, any any freezers you have with space not being occupied, stick them in there. They will become a thermal battery help you keep your food cooler during a power outage. Plus, they will be water when they melt. And store them all in a bottom of a closet, out in a garage, whatever. About once a year, make sure you dump them out and refill them. Not because the water will go bad, but it will begin to taste like crap. Water doesn't go bad. You don't need to do anything special. If you want to put one eye drop, drop of bleach in each one to make yourself feel safe, you can. It'll make your water taste like shit and add chlorine to it when you don't need to. So I wouldn't do that, but you can if you feel better about it. Just clean them out with good hot water. You might want to use, to make sure that they're cleaned out well and not anything in them that could be contaminated, a little bit of a weak bleach solution when you clean them out. At that point, fill them up 50 gallons minimum. It is free. It costs no money. Whatever your water bill is, it ain't that much for $50. You have no excuses. This needs to be done. It needs to be started now. Talk to your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. If you don't use those types of bottles, Somebody you know does, and they're throwing them away or putting them in the recycle bin. Ask them for them. If you don't want to reveal that you're prepping because you're afraid, they will show up when the zombies march. Just tell them it's for a project. Tell them it is because your kid is doing something with school, and they get a penny for everyone they bring in or something. Just say you need as many of them as you can get for a while, and when you don't feel like you need any more, tell them I don't need any more. I mean, that is as simple as it gets. It is so simple it doesn't make any sense to me. That anybody's not done it. And those of you who have been here know we practice what we preach. In my big pantry, in my off my kitchen, there's probably 50 to 100 gallons of water in there right now, plus a full Berkey, and then out of my garage there's at least another 50 gallons of water. Just stored like that. We have 1,500-gallon water tanks that do rain catchment. I have a 27,000-gallon pool. I'm not going to run out of water. I still have that because it's convenient, it's clean, and it's easy. And it beats the shit out of buying, you know, one liter cheap water bottle from a store. You can do that too if you want to. It's not bad to have around, by the way. If you're ending up helping other people and you can say, well, here's a bottle, here's a bottle, here's a bottle. For disaster relief, those things work great. But for your own personal use, 50 to 100 gallons minimum. And I'm going to actually say at this point, I'm just going to go right now live, well, pre-recorded live, and I just change it to 100 gallons. At this point, I as long as I've been doing this, I see no excuse for it being less than 100. And I know you can go through 50 quicker than you think you can. So 100 gallons of water stored, however you choose. But in the one uh, gallon to two liter soda bottles is a great way to do it. It's portable. It can be given away. It can be moved around. Should you ever try to move around something that's 100 gallons of water, uh, that would be 825 pounds in one container. Probably not the best way to do it for your basic storage next step 13 get a minimum of two emergency radios these are battery-powered you can have crank up you can have solar you can have all that but they better use regular batteries too that get a.m. and FM and the weather band if you want to get shortwave fine knock yourself out at least two of those when the power is out and all the uh, information services are down, these are your final link to communications with the rest of the world to find out what the hell's going on. And during, uh, especially during weather events, they can be life-saving. So at least two of them, because two is one, and one is what? None. The next thing, acquire some means of backup communications. So some way that you can talk to people, CB, ham radio, I don't care what, some way that you can reach people other than just a phone. And I would include more than one if you can. The reality, though, is in most disasters, not all, but in most disasters, cell phones still work in most or all of the disaster area. They have become far more resilient than they were during things like Hurricane Katrina. Uh, there's far more redundancy in the cellular networks now, unless you live somewhere with spotty anyway. So things like being on the Zello network are extremely valuable because you can reach other people outside to find out what's going on. Whereas your, your, your friends that you can call may not know what the hell's going on. They might be in the area with you and just as limited in knowledge. So any way you can reach outside of that disaster area. So I think you should really look at building up, um, at least uh, some means of backup communication with others. And I think that that can even be a neighborhood thing. If you just went out and got good quality Motorola walkie-talkie radios and made sure that you had several people within your neighborhood that, that, that would be on board with you and give them a sense. and keep them, keep them plugged in. And if everything shuts down and we're having trouble with the neighborhood, I want you to just turn it on, go to Channel 4, and let us know you're there so we can stay in touch with each other. That may be more valuable than getting outside the disaster area. Keeping your neighborhood calm during a disaster. Keeping your neighborhood organized during a disaster. A lot of looting and stuff like that doesn't happen if the neighborhood is prepared. And I don't mean everybody out with guns and stuff. It's a very fact that everybody's organized and have their stuff together and, and, and is looking out for each other just makes people that are scum during a disaster pick weaker targets. So good additional communications one way or another. Um... Then I would say, and this one is toward the end of these other 20 steps, go ahead at this point, when you have a deep pantry, you have your couple tubs of food and stuff, and, and build up over time a 30-day supply of commercial long-term storage food for your household. So that would mean for all the people that are normally there, at least 30 days. This is your mountain house. This is your MREs and things like that. And I mean a full month. And I'm not saying go buy it all at once and spend a lot of money. You can do this slowly over time. Pick up a couple cans of this, a couple packs of MREs, this and that as you go. Um, And you can take some non-specific stuff that is extremely long-term storage and make it part of that, like, that's your tertiary preparedness plan. So your primary deep pantry. Your secondary, your additional food storage in your tubs and buckets. Your tertiary is this stuff that's going to be good for 10 years or more. You can set it and forget it. It's in a closet somewhere, but it's there and that's a month supply. But Jack, you need a year because when the when the CME comes in, you know, just relax, all right? If you want to go that far, I'm not going to stop you. This is this is where you begin. And I'm telling you, if you have a deep pantry and you have a couple tubs of of secondary preps and then you have a 30-day supply, if we ever get to where you need more than that, you're either feeding the whole neighborhood and God bless you for it, okay? Or we have such a problem on our hands that whatever you do you're probably still going to have to rely on others for help. Plain and simple. I mean, we're at a point where you're going to have to be pulling together localized militias at that point and, and working with what's available locally. You're not going to store enough to survive for five years on your own in the middle of a mountain. And if you've already done that, you've probably wasted half your life doing it. I'm sorry. It's just the case. Um, so, make sure that you are um, having at least that additional 30 days long-term supply of stores. That's actually 16. I skipped 15. 15 is build a basic documentation package. I have a whole episode on that. I'll link to it in today's show notes for you so that you can listen to it. Um, there's a master gunnery sergeant from the United States Marine Corps that started listening to the show right when I began, right from the beginning. And I was in the mid-hundreds, I think, when I did this show. And I met him in person a couple uh, months after I did this show. And he shook my hand and said, that is the most valuable thing you have done for America. This guy had been 30 years in the Marine Corps. He said, that is, that is so spot on. And that's something that everybody should do and almost no one does. This is all your contacts, all your information that you might need to access, insurance, policies, bank accounts, etc. I talk about ways to encrypt your data on this, and this is not electronic. This is written. This is printed out. This is maps on how you would get out of your home during a disaster. And you need one for your home and one for every vehicle. And if you get your your teenage daughter a vehicle, one goes in her vehicle. And if something goes, goes wrong and she has to evacuate and you have already been thrown out, and you're on the phone with her and she's freaked out, you say, go to page 16, I'll meet you at point A. See where that's at? Daddy's going to be there. And that grabs control of the situation. This is hotels you would make reservations with. This is companies you would call to cut the trees off of your car. Jack, I have a chainsaw, and I'm going to cut the tree off my car myself. Well, if the tree came through your window and injured you and you can't do it, is your wife going to cut it off herself? What if she's injured? What if you're away from home when it happens? You know, well, everybody's going to be calling. That's why you're going to have all the information in VETS, so you can be at the front of the line. Okay? Including things like a hotel reservation. You have a mandatory evacuation. You have to get at least 20 miles away from your home. You have a whole list of hotels in a book that are about 30 miles away. Boom, I need a reservation. And while everybody's trying to find a hotel, you're getting one. That doesn't sound like survivalism. That's because you don't know what survivalism is. Survivalism is planning for contingencies. Okay, planning for, for systemic failures, planning for things to go wrong. And when you're a survivalist, you use whatever's best available for the situation to make things better for yourself and your family, and improve your odds of survival and or comfort and health. So if that happens to be, it's going to be two days, screw it. Here's my, here's my credit card number, my debit card number, I need a room, and everybody goes and hangs out in the Romana for two days. And by, again, by the time everybody's freaked out and, and calling and everything's booked up, you're already you're at the front desk checked in. That's part of that documentation package. There's a ton that goes in there. So, again, I'm just going to point to the episode on it. But it is one of those things that costs no money and needs to be done. Um, the next thing, step 17, learn at least two methods of your own food storage. I don't care if it's canning, vacuum sealing, dehydration. Learn two ways to preserve food for long-term storage. And you will start to see opportunities everywhere to increase your long-term food storage. And when you take up gardening, and probably sooner or later you'll either garden or, or, or come across opportunity buys or put in some fruit trees or stuff, you'll start to see ways that you can take all this surplus and do something valuable with it. Uh, fermenting food, canning food, even just blanching and fra- flash freezing. We'll learn two methods to take food that's not storable and make it storable. And it doesn't have to necessarily be on the shelf without refrigeration storable. But just to make it long-term storable and keep the quality up. Just teach yourself two ways to do it and learn how to do it. Um, The next one, find some local food producers and visit them often. Learn about seasonal opportunities with that. So that could be a farmer's market where there's a bunch of them. That could be some local person that sells pastured poultry. I don't care what it is. find a place to start procuring some of your food less than 20 miles from your house. Where it's actually produced there. And you will, you will open up a whole Pandora's box into better living, better eating, better relationships within your community, higher quality food. And it will lead you to becoming more nutritionally sound in your life. Just by doing that. I won't tell you what to do with it. I'm just telling you there's this place to start your discovery. Very, very simple. Um, the next thing, step 19. This is one a lot of you are going to be like, really? And I'm going to tell you, yeah. Learn to cook. Ten new recipes. And the next month, I don't care if you're a guy and your wife always cooks. You learn to cook. I don't care if you're a wife and your husband always cooks. You learn to cook. Ten new things. And try to use some of your storables in your meals. Whatever they may be. Um, it's it, it's so simple. And what happens is if you start Doing this, you'll figure out, well, I learned how to make stew. Stew's awesome in the cold weather. This is great. Well, I can't really store the beef. Not only can you store the beef, you can make the stew, and one of your less, one of your things you can learn about food storage is canning. You can make a huge pot of stew. You can have a meal for that night, and instead of eating leftovers for five days in a row to where the kids are tired of stew instead of being something awesome, you can can up the balance of it and put it on the shelf. And the next time you want to, you can either go get a can and do no work or do it again and build up more storage that way. Very so that they start to they start to become synergistic and work together as you do them over time. But the, the cooking is huge for a bunch of reasons. One, it will make you excited about some of the other steps, like cutting your spending and like finding local food producers. You know, you'll learn that there's more than two ways to make chicken. You know? seriously, and you start to learn cooking techniques, and then your food starts to be so exciting and such a big thing of what you do, then you don't want to eat out as much. And therefore that makes cutting your outbound expense of eating out easier to do. So they're all very, very synergistic. And, And step 20, and this is something to start working on right away, even if it's just every day, every week, put a $5 bill in a jar. Store a reasonable amount of cash on hand. I call that COH. Right, You've got to have some cash on hand. There's so many things that go wrong that cash makes go away. It's imperative. And I find grown adults walking around 20 miles from home with no cash in their pocket all the damn time. So there's some cash in your pocket... There may be a little bit of cash stuffed away in the back of your ashtray in your, your vehicle because you're not smoking anymore or you in your glove compartment or up underneath the seat. I don't know, 10, 20 bucks at least in some spots like that and a significant amount in your home in a firebox, right? Little firebox with all your documentation and stuff like that in it, your important things, backup files for your computer and stuff all protected in that nice little firebox. And one of the things in there is maybe a few thousand dollars. I know not everybody can do that, but you know if you have 10,000 in the bank in a savings account go take 2,000 out put it in cash and put it somewhere where you're not going to spend it so it's there in case of an emergency when you can't get your money out of the bank like on christmas day when the power goes out and your neighbor says I'll get all that crap out of your driveway for you for 20 bucks or you can get to the store but their 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 machines are down And you can't use a credit card, and the kid wants milk, and you didn't store milk, so now you're screwed because you can go buy milk and bread before the storm. You need 20 bucks to buy that gallon of milk that's left, whatever it is, right? Store some cash on hand. But, guys, it's that simple. These are the things that if you do these things in your life, you will be more prepared than you can ever imagine. And you'll start to look at life a new way. And you'll start to design your life. See, here's the truth in this all. My real goal as someone that's an advocate for preparedness is, yes, to keep you out of misery and trouble and harm as much I can, but really is to save you from the modern American life. There are two types of people in this world and only two. There are those that design their lives and those that have others design their lives for them. And the people designing your life for you do not have your best interest at heart. When you begin to do these things, you start to visually ascertain your life and what's going on around you. You stop doing things without thinking. You start to take control. You start to ask yourself, what could I do better? And then you begin to evaluate your threats and your opportunities. And then you begin to say... This is what I want for myself and my family. And then you begin to take steps to make that happen. And guess what? You're into the science of lifestyle design. I don't have to teach you about it. I don't have to tell you how to do it. You'll want to learn and you'll teach yourself. That's what good teachers do. They make you want to learn and they make you want to teach yourself. These are your entry points. But there isn't one of these that you shouldn't do. And I know you can't do them all tomorrow, but you can do them all in the next six months. There isn't one thing on this list that you can't figure out how to do in the next six months. And in six months, right, so we're talking June 1st, because I'm letting you start January 2nd, right? June 1st, 2015, I'll make you a deal. Anybody that does, that can show me you checked off all of these steps and thinks it was a mistake, come to me honestly, don't lie, just for money. Tell me, and I'll give you $300 out of my own pocket. If you can do all of these and say, I shouldn't have done any of these things, this was a bad idea, that my life is not better for keeping a food log, keeping a spending journal, doing a risk assessment of my life, building a blackout kit, having a first aid kit, doing some coffee canning, cutting some expenses, having a 72-hour kit. This sucks. I wish I didn't do any of this. I wish I didn't have that stupid backup power. I wish I didn't have a stupid backup heating. It's June stupid. It's not hot. It's not cold out. I wish I didn't have that extra food under my bed. I wish I didn't have an extra water. That's stupid. I wish I didn't have emergency radios and someone to talk to people when the power's out. I wish I didn't have a documentation package to tell me what to do. I wish I didn't have a thirty day supply of extra food. I wish I didn't have like this knowledge, this stupid knowledge in my head of how to store food and how to like can or dehydrate. This is this is awful. I wish I could get it out of my head. You know, this is just, just terrible. I wish I didn't know local producers that I could buy food from and get good quality food and have new friends and new relationships. This sucks, you jerk, Jack. You're such a jerk. You know? I I wish I didn't know about seasonal food opportunities where I could get more food for less money because it's in abundance. You're an asshole. This sucks. I wish I didn't know how to cook new things. I wish I didn't have any friggin' cash in my pocket. You're an ass. Give me $300 if you could honestly tell me that. On June 1st, if you start doing this, on January 2nd, I'll give you $300. I'll probably list you as the saddest human being on planet Earth in payment for your $300 you've taken from me. you have to be honest with me. Can you see that happening? I can't. So I'm only pulling up 300 bucks. I mean, I could have 1,000 people. I don't even know where I'd get the money if I had 1,000 people who wanted $300. With a 100,000 people listening to the show, it could happen. But I don't think it will. But you also have to take step 21. This is my insurance policy. Remember, you always have an insurance policy for everything that you do. For every risk you take, you have to have an insurance policy. So you also have to take step 21. Affirm your right and responsibility to survive. Affirm your right and responsibility. State, I have a right to survive. And I have a responsibility as... As well, to ensure that for myself and my family and my community. Remember, every right has a responsibility. Do you have a right to life? Yes. Then you have a responsibility to see to your life. Do you have a right to pursue happiness? Yes. Then you have a responsibility to pursue it in a responsible way. Do you have a right to self-defense. Yes. Then you have a right to secure your weapon so that it doesn't end up in enemy hands. Right. You have a, you have a responsibility. That goes along with every right. So start out with, you have a right to survive. You are worth surviving. It is valuable to the world that you continue to be here. There are people that care about you. There are people that want you to be here. Your life has meaning, and therefore it's worth preserving. And therefore you have the responsibility to see to it. If you add step 21 to those 20 steps, you cannot come back to me on June 1st. And tell me they weren't worth doing the biggest reason that Americans were made unprepared is they refuse to see their own value as individuals and as family members, and they further refuse to take on the responsibility to see to their own survival that's not good enough. The same guy with the foam finger saying we're number one doesn't believe it in his heart enough to preserve his own ability to feed his family that's how weak we've become of it as a nation we can't fix everything but we can fix our own lives everything I've given you today exists within your circle of influence, none of this is outside of the influence circle into the sphere of concern this has nothing to do with the president this has nothing to do with political action that has nothing to do with anything that you personally can't see to so see to it You're worth it. Your family's worth it. Your community's worth it. And frankly, your nation's worth it. Your nation's worth it. Just because everybody else won't do it doesn't mean that you can't. And it doesn't mean it can't actually, over time, change something as large as a nation. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.